2,000 years ago, Jerusalem was the center of one of the most dramatic scenes to ever play out in human history. Hatred lined the streets as people cried out, crucify him. The venom that was displayed on that day and the anger and the malice. Jesus Christ was hung on a cross and crucified in the midst of this city that was in the middle of an upheaval. Then on that Sunday morning, Jesus rose again from the dead and the news of his resurrection began to spill throughout that city that was filled with hatred and venom and malice and now the news of the resurrection of Jesus has begun to permeate this city and less than two months after that event, Simon Peter stood up in the middle of that city He preached a powerful message that we have recorded for us in the second chapter of the book of Acts. He preached the gospel. And in this city that had been spilling over with hatred and malice and confusion, and Peter stood up in the middle of that city and preached the bold gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible records for us that 3,000 people in a sweeping moment embraced the person of Jesus Christ and surrendered their lives to Him. Can you imagine I mean, you're talking about a city that is being rocked from one side to the other. Inside of about 45 days, there's the streets being lined, the shouts being screamed, the venom being just thrust out, and Jesus being crucified, and then a resurrection from the dead, and then Peter gets up and preaches, and now 3,000 people in a sweeping moment embrace the gospel. And here's the way the book of Acts records that historic moment in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Listen what it says. So then, those who had received his word. The word there is the word of the gospel that Peter had preached on this historic day. We call it Pentecost. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. I want to leave that up there for just a second. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and that day about 3,000 souls attended. That's important. 
That's not just trivial. That's not just semantics. It's important. We like to talk about attendance a lot. But the Bible says that in that moment, on that day, 3,000 souls were added. The word added is a, a phrase in the Greek language. It's really a compound word. It, it means literally to join together with. It means in that moment, those 3,000 people became a part of something. Now we know that something to be the family of God. I love the way Matthew Henry writes about this particular word. Look what he says. He said, those who are joined to Christ are added to the disciples of Christ. When we take God for our God, we must take his people to be our people. And that day, there were added. You see, up until that day, there was about 120. They had gathered in an upper room. The Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 1, about 120 disciples, the family of God, had gathered in an upper room waiting on God to move, waiting on God to speak, waiting on the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry out the mission of the gospel. But now in Acts chapter 2, they've been empowered and they preach the gospel. And the Bible says 3,000 got added to them. And then they celebrated this beautiful picture of baptism that we're going to celebrate in our services today. But baptism is an opportunity to make a public statement about something that's already happened. Nothing happens in baptism. It's something that's already happened that we're giving a public witness about. Let me tell you what happened in Jerusalem on that day. A couple of powerful statements were made. The believers, the family of God, the church was making this statement. They belong to us. And those new followers of Jesus were in response saying, We belong to them. The last four weekends... We have been in a series at Hope simply entitled, I Belong. We gave you a foundational statement to kind of unpack this. And and what I'm, I'm trying to show you in the Acts passage this morning is this is not just some cute way at Hope that we're trying to package what it means to be a part of the church. It's the biblical precedent. When we read about it in the book of Acts, when we read about the way this fleshed out in the city of Jerusalem, this is the way the church has always been. Here's the foundational statement that we gave you. Church is not an event we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. Say that out loud with me. One, two, three. Church is not an event we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. The Bible says they were added to the family 
of God. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on what I'm about to say, but I do want to at least say it so you can process it. As a side note, the family of God only has one expression in the world today. And that is local fellowships. There are some people that have the idea that, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of the family of God, and so I just bounce around from church to church, and, you know, on this Sunday I'll go here, and on this Sunday I'll go there, and on this Sunday I'll go over there, and on this Sunday I'll listen to this person on the Internet because I'm a member of the family of God. (laughs) The church only has one visible expression, and it is local New Testament fellowships, meaning that When we say we belong, we we do, in one sense, belong to the the big-picture family of God that will be in heaven someday. But the New Testament paradigm is the local expression is where each of us find our root and where we begin to use the gifts God has given us in service to His body. You and I belong. And I particularly, and many of you would say, I belong to the family of God called Hope Church. This is not an event that I attend. It's a family to which we belong. Now, when you understand that, it gives great power to the 40 plus one another statements in the New Testament. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the Bible, Jesus, Peter, Paul, they they record for us statements that describe the way we are to relate to each other inside of the family of God. This power phrase, one another. You you read it over and over and over again in the New Testament. These power phrases of how we're to relate to one another, they're to be carried out in the context of the local fellowship, the church. It's a pastoral team. We studied through these 40 plus one another statements and we reduced them down to, to five defining statements that describe the way you and I are to relate to each other inside of the family of God. So far, we've covered three three of them. We have this week's and next week to finish. I want to review quickly by just reading them off the screen. Let's read them together. The first one was love. Let's read it. Number one, one, two, three. Because I belong, I am responsible to love others as Christ has loved me. Wow. Wow. That's heavy. Over 17 times, Jesus said, Love one, or the New Testament says, Love one another. Many of those from the lips of Jesus himself. He's describing a radical kind of relationship by which you and I are to, to, to have with each other. And he says in the New Testament, Love one another as I have loved you. He raises the standard on what that love is to look like. The second one, Pastor Tom unpacked for us a couple of weeks ago. Honor. Let's read this one together. One, two, three. Because I belong, I am responsible to consider others as more important than myself. It's not optional. Because I belong to the family of God, this is a responsibility that I have inside of the family. Romans 12.10 says we're to give preference to one another in honor. Philippians 2.3 says we're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. 
Third one, Pastor Brian unpacked it last weekend. Disciple. Look at it on the screen. Let's read it. One, two, three. Because I belong, I am responsible to lead others to follow Jesus and obey his word. You see, we don't just come to church for our spiritual growth and development. If you think all this exists just to help you grow, you got some growing yet to do, right? We have a responsibility inside of the family of God to lead others to follow Jesus and obey his word. That's why in Hebrews he said we're to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 it says we're to pursue the things that encourage and build up one another. It's interesting as you look at these five that we've kind of laid out. The first two, love and honor, are really fleshed out in the last three. When you really love as Christ loved and honor, regard others as more important than yourself, one of the first outflows of that is you begin to be concerned for the spiritual growth and development of other people. As I love people and as I honor people, I have a desire to see them follow Jesus and obey his word. I have a passion to begin to disciple them, to pour into the life of other people. That that flows out of loving them and honoring them. We come to the fourth of these statements today. I want to read it for you and put it up on the screen. It's the word serve. Because I belong. I'm responsible to meet the needs of others. Let's read it out loud together. One, two, three. Because I belong, I am responsible to meet the needs of others. I pray. I pray that with each of these statements, we've given you now four of them. We have one more next weekend. And I'm telling you, I know it's getting close to Christmas, and I know some of you will decide next weekend not to come and just come on Christmas Eve, and that's all right. We'll give you a pass. But listen, let me tell you something. (laughs) Next Sunday morning, the message, the fifth of these words, could be the most powerful application we ever carry out in the life of our fellowship. I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about next weekend is the difference between healthy and unhealthy when it comes to living out life in church. And the church in America is so sick and so unhealthy. And in many ways, it's because of the principle that we're going to talk about next Sunday. We're not going to talk about that one today. That's next Sunday, all right? (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about serve. If you have your Bible, open it to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. You listen to the way Simon Peter writes this phrase. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. You see it? Serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
There is so much in that little sentence that Simon Peter gave us about serving. So what I want to do is I want to give it to you in four defining statements. Here's the first one. You have been given a grace gift. You have been given a grace gift. Read that out loud with me. One, two, three. You have been given a grace gift. Say it again real loud. You have been given a grace gift. Now, I want you to say this. You, say it, you means me. You means me. You have been given a grace gift. You're not reading that for the person sitting next to you. You're reading that about you. You've been given a grace gift. That's what the Bible says here. As each one has received a special gift. Well, let's ask a couple of questions about that. What is a grace gift? What does that mean? Well, the word that's translated special gift here is literally the word in the Greek language we've transliterated. Here's how you say it in English. It's the word charisma. Charisma. It's a Greek word that, that comes from the root word that we get our word grace from. The, the, root, the word grace in the Greek language is the word charis. It's the word grace. This word charisma comes from the Greek word we get our word grace from. Charisma is the result of God's grace in our lives. It is an undeserved benefit. It is a gracious, divine enablement. Here's the point. At the moment of salvation, believers are gifted by the Holy Spirit in a unique way to serve one another. I want you to hear that. The moment you became a Christian... The moment you surrendered the control of your life to Jesus and were born again into relationship with God, not a few minutes later, not a half hour later, not after you went to the church membership class, the very moment you were born again into relationship with God, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you in that moment, that transaction of being born again. And when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, He gives you a gift that is unique for you to use use inside of the family of God serving other believers. Listen to the way Dr. Jimmy Milliken, Jimmy Milliken was one of my professors in seminary, had a tremendous impact on my life. Listen to the way he talks about this word charisma. Look at it on the screen. He said charisma, this Greek word, is the outward manifestation, not of that with which one is born, nor inherited through the womb of the mother. But what is implanted by the Holy Spirit when one is reborn, it is that which is accomplished in and through the believer by the Holy Spirit, which would otherwise not be accomplished. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't pick it out of a cafeteria line. God in His grace at the moment of salvation, gave it to you. In the New Testament, 
the New Testament in a few different places like Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, it begins to list some of these spiritual gifts. Over 25 of these grace gifts are listed in the New Testament. My personal conviction is the New Testament does not give us an exhaustive list. It's just a sampling of some of the ways that the Spirit of God gifts believers inside of the body of Christ to serve one another. For example, one of the gifts that's mentioned in the New Testament is a gift that God's given to me is the gift of teaching. It's a spiritual gift. Here's what that means. I don't have this role of teaching inside of the family of God because I'm a gifted communicator. I don't have this role of teaching inside of the family of God because I've sought that out and cultivated this craft. I have this opportunity and this role to teach inside the family of God because God in His grace has given it to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. There's nothing I can do to merit it. It's a grace gift given by God to teach. Let me give you proof of that. In my 11th grade English class, I failed a semester because I refused. I refused. I'm not talking about third grade. I'm talking about 11th grade. (laughs) I refused to give a three-minute speech in front of a class of 25 students. I wasn't doing it. And how do you get up every week and teach in front of a couple thousand people? How do you travel all over the country and speak to tens of thousands of people? Let me tell you how. It's a grace gift. So don't look up here and think anything special about me. It's a grace gift. God in His grace has given me a gift to be used in service to the body of Christ. It's a grace gift. Now, it doesn't mean that all of us don't have the responsibility to disciple. We all have the responsibility to disciple. We all have the responsibility to to pour into others what's been poured into us. We all have the responsibility at some level to teach others to love Jesus and obey His Word. That's all of our responsibility. But some of us have been gifted to teach in a way that's unique to our role inside the family of God. Same principle is true with giving. Giving is listed as a spiritual gift. All of us have the responsibility in the New Testament to give. We're all to give out of what God has given to us. We're all to invest in the kingdom of God through the local church. But there are some people inside the family of God who have a unique supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit of God to just give. You know how I know that? There are some of you that are sitting here this morning. Every time we have a need, you're the first person to step up and say, what can I do to meet that need? And listen, it's not often people with the most. Sometimes people think, oh, yeah, the people that have the gift of giving, they're the people with the most. No. You'd be surprised at who some of the people are who step up and say, let me meet that need. Sometimes you think, I don't know if if they have the capacity to do that. But God's given them a supernatural enablement, a grace gift. That's what a grace gift is. If that makes sense, say amen. amen. Now, who has a grace gift? Well, listen to what he says. Each one, 
it literally means everyone. It means that every person in the family of God has been given a grace gift. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you would say by your own testimony, raising your hand, I am a child of God. I am a saved person. I've given my life to Jesus. Hold your hand up for just a minute. Hold it up. Be proud of it. Rejoice in it. Give a testimony. Amen? Hey, keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Everybody with your hand up, guess what else you got? You got a grace gift. Every one of you. You can put them down. Every one of us. How do you know that? It's what the book says. Peter says, each one of you. And he's writing here to Christians, to believers. Every one of you, by the power, not because you deserve it. I'm not talking about a talent or a skill. I'm talking about something that is unique to the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. He's gifted you in a way that's unique to you. And it's to be used inside of the family of God. You got a gift. No one is excluded. Here's what that means. Every member of the family is valuable. Teddy led us to sing it just a minute ago. I need you, you need me. We're all a part of God's family. What is that? It's what the book says. We need each other because we've been grace gifted by the Holy Spirit of God to serve one another. And we cannot function in the fullness of what God's brought us into without each other. I want to show it to you in another place in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, look, what, look at the way Paul writes about it. He says, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for any less reason a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? I mean, we read that in the Bible and think, oh, that's great. Just think about it. If your whole body were an eye, how weird would that be, right? You wouldn't want to sit by that dude in church, right? (laughs) Big eyeball in the seat next to you, right? That's gross. That's weird. (laughs) The whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? If you were just a big old ear, you couldn't smell. But now, listen to this. Look at it. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. When you become a part of this family of faith, we ask you in our membership process to pray and hear from God. Why do we do that? Because we want to make sure... You're hearing from God, and God's placing you here. Because the book says God places. The word place there is a word that that means to assign. Here's what that means. God has a unique assignment for you in the family. The word desired is a word that means purpose. 
It, it communicates that your unique assignment is a part of God's purpose. Here, here's, I want you to see this. God has brought Hope Church into existence for His mission to accomplish His purpose. And every one of you that are a part of Hope have been grace-gifted by the Holy Spirit of God with a unique assignment, and we will never accomplish the mission God's given us without every one of us functioning in our grace gift. You and I have been given a grace gift. November 1934, two teenage boys walked into a church service to listen to a preacher that you may have heard about named Mordecai Ham. Pretty well known at the time. In his lifetime, over a couple of hundred thousand people came to Christ in response to the preaching of Mordecai Ham. These two teenage boys walk in to hear him preach the gospel. They'd heard about him. But the crowd was so large they couldn't find a seat and they're making their way out to leave. And an usher sees them and grabs them and brings them back in and finds them some seats right down close to the front where they were afraid to go by themselves. Both of those teenage boys that night gave their lives to Jesus. You may or may not have ever heard of Mordecai Ham. You've definitely ever heard the name of the usher. But I know you've heard the name of one of those young men. His name is Billy Graham. Now listen to me. Who's going to get the rewards in heaven? Billy Graham? Mordecai Ham? Well, that usher who caught two teenage boys and used his gifts to find them a seat. You see, here's the point. It doesn't happen without all of them. You've been given a grace gift. Here's, here's the second statement. You're responsible to use that grace gift To serve others. Look what he says. Each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another. That little phrase, employ it in serving, in the Greek language is just one word. And that one word literally means to wait on a table. Employ it in serving. It's the picture of a waiter or a waitress serving people having a meal. My wife is sitting right over here. We are, uh, like most marriages, wired very differently on a lot of things, right? It doesn't God have a sense of humor, right? I mean, puts you together with somebody that you think just about the opposite about on so many different things, and, and then he just gives you a lifetime to kind of work that out and... A lot of questions I got when I get, get to heaven. That's one of them. Lord, what in the world? <laughs> My wife and I, one of the things that we see differently is food and eating out. I got the most low-maintenance wife you could ever want in the, in the world. I'm telling you, my wife is satisfied with the Waffle House. Now, some of you West Coast folks don't even know what a Waffle House is, right? 
Jim Gaffigan said it best. If you don't know what a Waffle House is, just imagine a gas station bathroom that sells waffles, all right? Uh, that's the Waffle House. My wife is content to be taken out to the Waffle House. Now, me, I like to go places where they're going to pamper you, right? I like to go places where, you know, when you drop a crumb, they got that little stick. Come on now, some of you like it too. They bring that little stick and they rake them little crumbs. That's what I'm talking about. Now you're eating out, right? I will pick my place to eat sometimes not based on the food, based on the service. Just how well they take care of you. Here's the point. Look at it on the screen. God has given me a gift. And I'm to live on the lookout for ways to use my gift to serve others in the family. You know, a good waiter or waitress, they don't wait on you to ask. You take a drink out of your cup and they're filling it up before you get halfway down, right? You finish one plate, they're removing it and putting the other one down before you can even think about asking them. They're they're way ahead of where you are in the process. God's given me a gift. Listen, God's given you a gift. And we're to live on the lookout for ways to use that gift to serve others in the family. I'm not to wait to be asked. You ever had this thought? I know some of you have because you've asked me this question before. You ever seen a need in the fellowship and wondered why the church didn't do something? Have you ever thought that God showed you so that the church would do something? The church is not an event. It's a family. We are the church. The church isn't located upstairs over in those offices. We're the church. Why didn't the church do something? Well, you saw the need. God showed it to you. God's grace gifted you. Why didn't you step up and do something? Everybody all right? <laughs> now, there are two big mistakes we make with spiritual gifts. There are a lot we make, but I'm going to give you two. One common mistake is that people get all out of whack trying to figure out their spiritual gift. I mean, there's all kind of tests and inventories. You can go online, and it's like we're trying to diagnose a problem in a computer, right? We're... we're trying to figure out what our spirit, and people get all caught up trying to, I can't serve until I know what my spiritual gift is because I want to serve in line with my spiritual gift. Well, let me give you some insight. God often reveals or identify your gift, identifies your gifting as you respond to opportunities to serve. When you see the need, respond by serving. And over time, as you do that, God will bring clarity to and define for you what your unique gifts and abilities are. Some, some have one gift. Some have more than one gift inside of the family of God. 
We know that we all have gifts. We just don't know how many each of us has. But don't get caught up trying to figure out what it is. Look for opportunities to serve because that's why God gave it to you. A second mistake that we often make is we begin to, once we do identify sometimes what our gifts are, we, we tend to think that the gifts are all about us. It's like we want to get a t-shirt printed up with our gift on it. And, oh, I don't do that. My gift is over here. That's not my gifting. I appreciate you asking, but that's just not my gifting. <laughs> Dr. Milliken said this. Gifts are given not for enjoyment, but employment. Not for personal satisfaction, but public service. Not for equipment of feelings, but for the enablement of fellowship. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Listen to what he said. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, listen, for the common good. That phrase, common good, it's in the present active tense. It could literally be translated, these these gifts are given for the continuous benefit of others. Meaning that gifts were not given to benefit you. Gifts were given to benefit others. If you're boasting in a gift that's all about building you up, it's not a spiritual gift because grace gifts were given for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ. We are to use those grace gifts in serving one another. Let me give you a third statement. Serving others is the only right response to God's grace in your life. Listen to what Peter said. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How many of you are thankful for grace? I like grace. If you're thankful for God's grace, just say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen, God's grace is amazing. God's grace giving us that which we do not deserve in salvation. Listen, we were lost. We were in sin. We were separated from God. We'd earned hell and deserved hell. But thank God for His grace. Amen. God in His grace gave me what I didn't deserve. God forgave me of my sin. God gave me sonship. God adopted me into His family. And God's given me gifts to serve. And here's what Peter says. Simon Peter says, my serving others is the only right response to God's grace in my life. The word steward that is used here was a powerful word in biblical times. In the times that the Bible was written, in ancient times in the Greco-Roman world, there were two main kinds of stewards. Stewards were typically household servants or slaves. And these household servants and slaves had the goods of their master entrusted to them. One of the stewards, uh, the most common kind of steward, was a steward called the dispenser. 
the dispenser was responsible for all the domestic arrangements of the household. Everything that happened in the household happened under the stewardship of the dispenser. This servant had been entrusted with the responsibility of overseeing the household. And so everything in the household happened out of the hands of the dispenser. A second kind of steward was called the bailiff. The bailiff was in charge of all of the master's estates or finances. Everything that the master had, he entrusted to the bailiff, and the bailiff would pay the bills, the bailiff would collect the rents, the bailiff would administer the financial resources as he saw fit. Now, both the dispenser and the bailiff understood that none of the things over which they had control belonged to them. They belonged to the master. Their responsibility was to steward those resources in a way that pleased and best represented the heart of the master. We are stewards. Of God's grace. Doesn't belong to us. It's His. He's entrusted it to us. To be a steward of His grace. Peter uses this word specifically in light of the gift. Or gifts that God has given us to use in serving others. They are gifts of the grace of God. And our responsibility is to steward those gifts in a way that pleases the Lord and most accurately represents His heart towards others. Here's what this means. Serving others is really more about my response to the grace of God in my life than it is about my response to the need in someone else's life. I'm going to say that again because I want you to connect that. Serving others is really more about my attitude and my response to God's grace in my life than it is my attitude or response towards the need in somebody else's life. Where you find a heart that is overwhelmed by the grace bestowed on them you always find a heart of serving other people. The only right response to the grace of God in my life is serving others. Let me give you the fourth and final statement. We're done. Serving others is the overflow of the life of Christ in you. 
Serving others is the overflow of the life of Christ in you. We said early on that these statements, these one another's, left to ourselves, we can't live these out. But as we allow Christ to live in and through us, we can, by His power, see these fleshed out. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to, say it out loud, be served, but to serve. Stop right there. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Now, where does Jesus now live? In you and me, by His Spirit. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. As I pursue Him and let Him live His life through me. Let me tell you what it looks like. Serving others. Because I belong, I am responsible to meet the needs of others.